Father, we come to you now and we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that your spirit would speak to us and that you would make us attentive to your voice, that you would open the eyes of our hearts and give us understanding and spiritual wisdom in the knowledge of your will so that we could be a people whose lives are pleasing to you, that we could walk worthy of the calling that you've given to us. And we pray that even tonight we would increase in our knowledge and our understanding about you. And so come, Holy Spirit, and work among us. And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen, amen. So if you are new and joining with us for the first time this evening, we began a new series a couple weeks ago looking together at the first century letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Colossae. And so uh, this is arguably one of the most, the most influential pieces of writing in Western history. And uh, so, and, it, and, and for us, it is sacred, divinely revealed text. And so we are diving into it, kind of exploring it together. And today actually is going to be a part two of, uh, from last week's uh, message. And so last week we spent some time kind of drilling down in the beginning of the story of the church in Colossae, uh, their story began when a leader named Epaphras came into the community and began to announce the good news that God had acted in the world shockingly through the death, through the cross, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when this news came in, uh, Paul says it made its home in this community of people. And it was like a seed that went in and found fertile soil in their hearts and lives. And there it germinated and began to grow. And eventually it began to bear fruit of faith and hope and love in their lives. And so this is the story of how their life as a church and how their life in Christ began. And this is probably the story of how many of your life began in Christ. Somebody shared with you the gospel. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher or a youth worker, or you were at a camp or maybe at a Billy Graham crusade, or maybe you were just alone and kind of like reading the Bible and somebody directed you to, to you know, the gospel of John. But there the good news went down into your life and like a seed, it found fertile soil and it began to grow and it began to bring about fruit and transformation in your life. And for some of you, it meant your addictions were finally broken. Your marriage was healed. Your life was transformed because the gospel came in. It made its home in your heart and life, and it began to change you. And so Paul says that is where this church began. This is where the Christian life begins. But what I want you to see tonight is that this isn't only the story of where the Christian life begins. This is also how the Christian life continues not just by us receiving the gospel in the beginning, but by us growing deeper in the gospel as we go on in the Christian life, having this good news go deeper and deeper into our hearts, our minds, our understanding, and begin to change our lives. Or put it like this, when our kids were little, I have four daughters. Uh, my, my, my wife and I, we, many, many uh, goals for them, you know, but... Um, two of the very essential life skills that we, we wanted to be sure to impart to our daughters was one, we wanted to teach them how to tie their shoes. And then we also wanted to teach them how to surf. But these were two very different things, you know. Uh, tying your shoes is, is a one and done thing. You learn it, you master that skill, and you move on to something else like cutting your meat with a knife or brushing your teeth or flossing or something like that. But surfing is altogether different. 
you know, I've taken each one of my daughters out into the ocean and I've pushed them into waves and all of them have stood up and ridden waves and they've surfed. But you know, when you learn how to stand up and surf, your learning about surfing has only just begun. You know, there's surfboards and there are different sizes and shapes and volumes. And then there's different types of waves. You know, there's point breaks and reef breaks and beach breaks and there's mushy waves and there's hollow waves and there's big waves and there's small waves. And, and then there's the ocean you have to learn about. You've got to learn about winds and tides and swell directions and which spots work best on which swells. And, and then uh, of course, there's, there's the surf lingo and a surf culture and a surf way of life. And, and you could spend your entire life and not master surfing. And, you know, learning the gospel is much more like learning how to surf than it is like learning how to tie your shoe. It's not one and done. It's not like you master the gospel, kind of the content of who Jesus is and what he's done, and then you move on to something else. Rather, the entirety of the life of following Jesus is a life of exploring the depth and the beauty and the mystery and the wonder of all that his work in this world means. Paul puts it like this in Colossians chapter two, verse six. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, in other words, as your Christian life began, you received this good news about Jesus. He says, so walk in him, be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught it, abounding with thanksgiving. In other words, the gospel is not just the ABC of the Christian life. It is the A to Z of the Christian life. And it is when you grow deeper in the gospel, according to Paul, that your life actually begins to more and more experience the transformation and the change that God desires for you and he desires for me. But the question that I want to explore this evening is how does that take place? What are the aspects, what are the dynamics of being a person who over the course of your life is growing in your understanding of the very center of the Christian faith, namely the gospel? Now, whether you've been walking with Jesus for five days or 50 years, this is a question you ought to ask because what it means for you to continue on in the faith is to continue to grow deeper in this news. And so how does that take place in a way that actually goes down deep in your own heart and life? And tonight we're going to explore that by looking at Colossians chapter 1 and then kind of diving back in from verses 6 all the way down to verse 11. But what I want you to see tonight is that there are three aspects to growth in our understanding of the gospel. There's an intellectual dimension, there is a spiritual dimension, and there is an ethical dimension. That You could put it like this, uh, if you are going to grow in the gospel, it is going to require that you engage your mind, that you also open your heart, and that you begin to walk out in a new way of life in this world. And so let's talk about each one of these three things, the intellect, the spiritual, and the uh, ethical aspects of kind of growing in the gospel. Notice first the intellectual or engaging the mind. Look what Paul says in verse six. And I want to point out to you something in these verses. So he's going to highlight, or I'm going to highlight a word that he uses over and over and over again in, in this book. And it's the word understand or understanding. And listen how he puts it in verse Six, he says, the gospel has come to you as it, is, as it has indeed in the whole world. It's bearing and fruit and growing as it does so among you since you heard it, but also understood the grace of God in truth. And then go down in verse 
9, he prays for them. Now that they're walking with Jesus, he says, from the day that we heard this, we have not ceased to pray for you. And what are we praying? That you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. And then here's our word again, and understanding. A little bit later in chapter two, Paul says, I am toiling, I am laboring on your behalf. And one of the things I am toiling and laboring to do is to bring you to a fuller understanding. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, points this out. He says, he says, the word translated understood indicates, quote, that the response sought is an intelligent thinking through and recognition of the truth. Did you hear that? The response sought is an intelligent thinking through and recognition of the truth. Paul describes the effect of Epiphras' preaching in Colossae in terms not so much of an emotional reaction, nor even of people accepting Christ into their hearts, but of hearing and of understanding the truth. And of course, some of you know this from your own experience. Maybe it took you a while before you kind of crossed the line from, belief, from unbelief to belief. And that journey involves some real intellectual and some, some kind of like wrestlings at, at a sort of a philosophical and intellectual level with your mind. Some of you may be there right now. Maybe you're wrestling kind of like, what, is, what does Christianity mean? And, and can I find this believable? And that's a good place to be in because Christianity does involve intellectual thinking through and recognition of the truth. N.T. Wright continues and he puts it like this. He says, for Christians to grow up in every way will include the awakening of intellectual powers, the ability to think coherently and practically about God and his purposes. Now, do you think about the Christian life in that sort of way? As an awakening of your intellectual powers, as something that calls for you to engage your mind. This is how Paul thinks of growing deeper in the gospel. There's a strong intellectual component. And you know, for Paul, there is no shortage of truth in the gospel to engage our understanding. Notice his language in chapter two, verses one to three. I love this verse, these verses, this is great. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And what's he struggling for? That their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love so that you can reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so he describes the gospel as this treasure house of immense and beautiful glory and mystery and wonder that should engage our imagination and reshape our worldview and engage the mind. Now, is it just me? And I, I don't wanna be too negative here. But is it just me or does Paul's description of Christ in the gospel in these verses as the treasure house of all wisdom and knowledge and glory and mystery stand in marked contrast to the more commodified, shallow-fied, uh, sometimes co-opted message of the gospel that is sold by televangelists or co-opted by politicians whose lifestyle bears very little resemblance to the content of the gospel? or maybe to corporations who reduce the glory of the gospel to trite cliches and then set them to bad music or put them on calendars or mugs or bumper stickers and then have them sold on amazon.com. Amen. But listen, this announcement that the creator of all things 
has acted on behalf of a broken and fallen world through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God entered into a finite human body that was killable and that he went through the rigors of crucifixion and went into death and came out the other side. This is beautiful and mysterious and full of wonder. And Paul says it should engage you. And it can engage your mind and the whole of your life. You know, don't misunderstand me. There is a simplicity to the gospel. You know, the gospel is shallow enough waters for a child to play in, but it is deep enough and rich enough for a whale to swim in and never reach the bottom or touch the shore. And, you know, the basics of the gospel are clear and simple enough for a child to get. You know, uh, when I was a child, I could repeat, Jesus died for my sins. You know, the, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I, I could rattle this stuff off. And, and, and there is an elegance and a simplicity to the gospel. But there is also this depth and this beauty and this wonder that once you have just the, the bare bones of the gospel, you've only just scratched the surface of it. And so, for example, take the phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So this is one of these great summary statements of the gospel. Paul says this. He says, I delivered to you the gospel, which I received and which I also gave to you. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He says, in a nutshell, that is the gospel. Christ has died, Christ was buried, and then Christ was raised again on the third day. And again, the basics are clear and simple enough for a child to understand, but if you start to scratch below the surface of what Christ was doing on the cross, you enter into this infinite sea of wonder and mystery. In fact, just a little bit later in Colossians, Paul starts to open up the wonder and mystery of the cross when he says this. He says that all things, get this, all things in heaven and on earth, all things, there it doesn't seem to be any limitation, all things in heaven and on earth have been reconciled through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. That is a remarkable statement. Have you ever thought about that? He says all things in heaven, he, he, he's referring to those aspects of the world, those aspects of society and life and, uh, that are broken and marred and produce pain and suffering. And Paul says, imagine those things. Imagine our world and all of the different aspects of it that have been infected by brokenness and sin everywhere where there's a minor key. You know, in our, in, in, in our economic systems, in our political systems, our criminal justice systems, in the inner city, in global tensions, in international espionage, in environmental degradation, mistreatment of workers and chickens and factory farms. You know, and then pain and broken relationships in the dorm or at the workplace or tension and conflict between brothers and sisters or husbands and wives and all kinds of brokenness and pain and tension in this world. And, and Paul, Paul asserts that in the cross of Christ, God was bringing reconciliation to it all. What does that even mean? I mean, what, what are the implications of that? 
And what are the implications of the fact that the way that the creator of the universe goes about bringing healing to a broken world is not through an imposition of power and violence, but through a glad, selfless act of love and through solidarity with the poor and the oppressed through a death on a cross. That should stimulate our wonder. And, you know, throughout the history of the church, the cross has captured the imagination of so many of the great thinkers and, and on different continents and in different languages. And they have, they've gone deep into these realities and they've said, this is, this is immense and it's beautiful and it's so rich. And there is so much here to ignite movements and to transform individual lives and, and to transform the world. And so don't you see, there's an entire world to explore, to engage the intellect and the mind, to have your own imagination uh, reshaped and your own worldview transformed by this message of the gospel. And it takes a whole life of engagement with this truth and going deeper into it to cause your mind to continually be transformed. Now, if this is gonna happen to you, if you're gonna engage the mind, it's gonna take at least two things. Are you ready for these two things? Number one, it's gonna require that you find some good teachers. You know, you can't learn the truth of the gospel in a closet all by yourself. You know, you can't fill your brain on your own. You need good teachers. And Paul actually makes reference to some good teachers in Colossae. He says, you learn this from Epaphras who taught you. And then Paul says, and you've learned it from me and I've taught you. You know, this week I was... Uh, my, my daughters came home from youth group and um, my daughter Mia said, you know, I love the variety of leaders and teachers that we have in our youth ministry. And she said, you know, uh, she referred, she said, you know, wisdom. So wisdom is one of our uh, youth leaders, but she said, wisdom, she's a preacher. And Athalie, she teaches us. And Justin, he creates art. And you know, you need preachers and teachers and artists and poets in order to further engage your own heart and your life and your imagination and your mind into the depth and the beauty of the gospel. And you need pastors and books and podcasts and sermons and, and all kinds of stuff to help you learn and to plumb the depths of this mystery. But you know, you don't just need the professionals. Uh, we need each other. It's just true when Paul talks about learning and being instructed in the gospel, he doesn't simply refer to Epaphras and himself as kind of the professional ministers. He says in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell among you all as you teach and admonish each other. In other words, there is some lessons in the gospel that you can only learn from a, from a praying grandmother from another brother or sister in the community of faith who has gone through deep suffering. There is some truth of the gospel that can only be gotten at through people whose experience is far different from yours. And they're not the academics, but they're the martyrs who, who do, they're the, those who died a martyr's death in Egypt. You learn something about the boldness and commitment of faith. Or you learn something about the faith through farm workers in Latin America or through slaves in the deep South back a few hundred years ago. You, you hear the spirituals. You, you, you can learn more about the faith as you engage in the voice of the community. You learn the gospel. And so if you are going to grow into the gospel, you need good teachers around you. But secondly, you not only need good teachers. Second, you need to be teachable. 
you know, real learning starts. It, it, this, I mean, this is, this is where real learning begins. Real learning begins when you realize that you have a lot to learn. Amen? Ever tried to teach somebody something that thought they already knew what you wanted to teach them, but they didn't really know what you wanted to teach them? And so they didn't pay attention to you? You know, very often we think we know more than we know. There was this great uh, old monk who wrote a book uh, called the, the Imitation of Christ. His name was Thomas Akempis. And he has this, uh, this little saying that he says, he says, thinkest thou knowest much? Knowest also this, that there is much which thou dost not know. And, you know, I think in our day and age where so much information has been democratized, has been democratized through the internet, and all of us think we're experts because we watched a TED Talk or we watched a clip on YouTube or we read a blog or we got a tweet. And all of a sudden, we're an expert on issues that we are pontificating about and talking about. And yet, you know as well as I do, the more you know, the more you come to realize that you don't know. And this is true with the gospel. You might think like, oh, I got it down. Christ died for my sins. God so loved the world. Got the gospel. Let's go on. to No, 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 no. Have you plumbed the depths of this mystery? There is beauty and glory to be found here, but you need to be teachable and recognize that there is stuff that you need to still learn. And so if we're going to grow deep in the gospel, number one, it's going to engage the mind. It's going to involve our heads. Uh, it's going to, there's an intellectual dimension to growth in the gospel. But secondly, in order to grow deep, we not only need to engage the mind to engage the head, but we also need to engage the heart. There's a spiritual dimension to our growth in the gospel. And notice back in the text, this is, this is pretty fascinating because Paul, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, again, he says, look, my role, my job is to help you grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And he says, and an epiphras, he was helping you grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. But then in verses 9 down to verse 12, what Paul does is he turns to God. And he says, look, if you are really going to grow in the gospel, you not only need human teachers, ultimately you need to be taught by God. And so he prays that collaborating with his own efforts of bringing knowledge and wisdom and understanding that God would actually fill them with knowledge and wisdom. Look at how he puts it in verse 9. And so from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you. And it is worth noting what Paul actually does pray for. He's not praying for their health, though many of them no doubt were sick. He's not praying for the fact that they're suffering, though many of them probably were going through very difficult times. You know, the, the first century Greco-Roman world was not an easy place to live. You know, you think COVID-19 is rough? Try living in the Roman Empire for a while. But he doesn't pray for their suffering and he doesn't pray for their health Instead, what he prays for is spiritual wisdom and understanding. Isn't that fascinating? It's as if he's saying, look, you're never really going to grow deeper in the truth of the gospel unless God enlightens your eyes and he does something inside of you that you cannot do on your own. Now, but what exactly is he talking about here? I mean, I, I don't think Paul is talking about going off into the woods somewhere and getting some secret wisdom and revelation from God that no one else has. Every now and again, you know, you run into somebody like that who thinks that they got some special thing from God that no one's ever seen, no one's ever heard of before. I remember this guy uh, <laughs> when I was a very uh, young 
uh, youth director. I remember there's this guy in our church who was one of these kind of little esoteric guys, and and uh, he he came up to me one day and he said, "Hey, hey, man, uh, God has given me incredible insight." And he says, I know things that people don't know. I see things that people don't see. And he says, watch, watch this, watch this. In the Old Testament, it says that Cain slew Abel. And get this, in the New Testament, it says that God is Abel. And I bet, man, you're abs- that's absurd. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is God giving revelation about the revelation he's given to us in Scripture and in Jesus. He's giving us enlightenment about the truth he has already revealed. Or we could put it like this. You know, there was a a great sermon preached by a Puritan whose name was Jonathan Edwards. And he preached this great sermon with a very Puritan-esque kind of title that went like this. It was called The Divine and Supernatural Light Immediately Imparted to the Soul. That's why the sermons were so much better back then as they had better titles. I don't even know what that title means. Do you? But he wrote this in this sermon, it's brilliant. He says, look, there is a difference between having an opinion that God is gracious and holy and having the graciousness and holiness of God actually impact you experientially. And then he says, there's a difference between knowing that honey is sweet and knowing the properties of honey and actually tasting the sweetness of honey and allowing it to fill your senses. And he says, and so too, there's a difference between having an intellectual knowledge that God is good and actually having that knowledge penetrate into your experience and your affections and make a difference in your well-being. There's a pastor in New York named Tim Keller, and he tells a story that I love about this uh, time when he was a pastor in Hopewell, Virginia. And this teenage girl comes to him for counseling. And she was depressed and despondent because she said that none of the boys uh, wanted to ask her to the prom. And so she was all depressed. And so what did Tim Keller do? He said he sat down with her, you know, as a young pastor. And he said, he said, he said, you know, don't you know that the creator of the universe has moved heaven and earth out of his passionate love for you? And that he has laid down his very life for you and he set his affections on you and his affections will never end. And and if the creator of all things has set his affections on you, then who cares what some pimply faced teenage boy thinks about you? (laughs) To which she responded, yeah, but what does all that matter if I can't get a date to the prom? (laughs) And we laugh, you know, but there's not a person on the grass tonight that hasn't had that thought. You know, that, well, what does all this matter if I can't fill in the blank? And so what causes this truth to actually go down into your heart? Well, it's when you wrap your intellectual engagement of the mind and your learning with a deep and a quiet prayer before God. God, open up my heart. God, open up my eyes. Make this truth live in me. You know, that's one of the prayers I regularly have as I go into my study to start studying scripture to teach you all. God, give me more light. It's one of my prayers for you all when we come together. God, my words are insufficient. I need you to come and act among us. And so if we are going to grow in knowledge, we need not only to engage the head and the intellect, we also need to have our own hearts warmed and transformed by the Spirit of God. And we need to join in Paul's prayer for spiritual illumination and light on the truth so that it could actually go deep in us and penetrate and change us. 
So there's an intellectual dimension, there is a spiritual dimension, but finally there's an ethical dimension to this growth in the gospel. Notice what he says back in verse 9 and 10. Notice he says, we're praying and we don't cease to pray that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he says, there's a so that. I'm praying this prayer so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He says, there is a telos, there is an end to your intellectual engagement and your spiritual enlightenment. And it is that you might live a life in this world that gives honor and glory to God and is pleasing to him. In other words, God engages our minds in the beauty and the glory and the mystery of the gospel. He opens our hearts to it so that we might be penetrated by it and experience God's love and transformation in our life. But then so that we might also go out into the world and start to reenact this good news in how we live our lives and thereby be witnesses of God's grace in Christ. But I think for far too many of us, information stops in the head. You know, have you ever met someone that was smart and stupid all at the same time? You know, people who are really intelligent, you know, they know calculus and physics and they read a lot of books, but they do stuff that just doesn't make any sense at all. And you think, how is it that you have a master's degree and you think it's a good idea to go home to your boyfriend's house at 11 o'clock and lie on the couch with him and watch a movie? That's stupid. How is it that you have a PhD and you don't know that the way you handle a conflict is not to go talk to other people about it, but to go have a face-to-face -face conversation with somebody? And so there's people who are smart and stupid all at the same time. You know, there's this uh, great scene in the, the uh, play Hamilton. You know, Hamilton is all, you know, Hamilton was brilliant. He was a genius, but through his own stupidity, his life imploded. And there's this transition point in the play where his wife sings to him this song. She says, you have invented a new kind of stupid, a damage you can never undo kind of stupid, and open all the cages in the zoo kind of stupid. Truly, you didn't think this through kind of stupid. And you know, there's a lot of us that we've got a lot of stuff in our minds and yet it hasn't worked out into smarts in our lives and into wisdom. And so what Paul prays is actually that this good news would go in and we would actually start to reenact the grace and the forgiveness and the compassion and the meekness and the humility that we've discovered in Christ in the gospel that has been good news to us that we would start to reenact that into our life in the world. You know, true knowledge doesn't start with what you know, but who you know. And what Paul envisions is for us living all of our life before the face of God for his pleasure in a way that is worthy. What an amazing vision for a human life. God, let it be that my life, let it be our lives. Let them be pleasing to you in all that we do. Let me be overflowing with gratitude. And Paul says, I'm praying that the gospel would go in so that you might live this kind of life. And ironically, it's interesting what Paul says at the end of the verse. He says that in living this kind of life, you will be increasing in the knowledge of God. 
And isn't that interesting? It sounds a little bit circular, doesn't it? I'm praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of God so that you could live a life worthy and then would be increasing in the knowledge of God. But it's not circular, it's spiral. And ironically, in the Christian life, the more faithfully you live into even those things you're not entirely sure about, but you keep walking with Jesus. And as you go, you begin to grow in your own knowledge and understanding of God's grace as you walk with him. And many of you have experienced that. And so growth in the gospel, it will engage your head, it will engage your heart, and it will engage your hands. It, it has this... this uh, intellectual dimension, this spiritual dimension, and this ethical dimension. But let me close with this. You know, as I was thinking about what this is calling us into, it, it, is, it is really calling us to disciplines of engagement. This is calling us to a discipline of engagement and study of God's word and of great books and of good thinkers. It's, it's a call of, of engagement into a regular practice of prayer and dependence upon God to open our eyes and give us deeper understanding. It is an engagement into a practiced faithfulness in this world. And it struck me as I was thinking about trying to kind of like actually engage our head and our heart and our hands in this way in the gospel and it just struck me that in the culture in which we live in, like having that kind of disciplined engagement of the mind, having a stilled engagement and quiet engagement of the heart, that is incredibly countercultural. You know, we live in an age that is utterly distracted. We are so, so distracted. We're distracted by all these stupid devices. We're distracted by social media and YouTube and Netflix and Disney Plus. Praise God for Disney Plus, but we're distracted by Disney Plus and Amazon Prime. And, and, and then we're, we're always just kind of being entertained by sensationalized news, which is, is there primarily to somehow or another get you to vote a certain way. And we're, we're, we're constantly, you know, being you know, imposed upon by these fear mongers and by, by people who are trying to make us angry at, at the other side. And, and yet, if we are going to engage in really growing deeper in the gospel, then we need to disengage from some things. And so what I want to invite you to consider this week is what do you need to disengage from? And what do you need to start engaging with in order to grow deeper in the gospel? What do you need to disengage from and what do you need to start engaging with if you are gonna grow deeper in the gospel? And I would invite you to take that question and talk it over with somebody who loves you and cares about you and then prayerfully kind of like engage in some new change in your life. But let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we praise you and we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus. We thank you, oh God, that you have not left us in this broken, painful, violent, dark world alone, but you have broken into this world. In your passionate love, you've given yourself away for us in Jesus. You have given us hope of new creation and new beginning in the resurrection. 
And God, it is our desire as a community of faith. It is our desire as your church to be a people that grows deep in this news that is rooted and grounded and built up in the gospel. God, would you give us the grace even this week? Would you challenge us? Would you convict us of those spaces where we need to disengage and those places where we need to re-engage so that our hearts might be warmed and our minds transformed by the revelation that you've given us in Christ. And it's in his name and for his glory that we ask these things. And all God's people said, amen.